for a long time, I was a victim. For a long time, I made bad mistakes. For a long time, I didn't heal my shit. Mm -hmm. And so it takes time. You can't go 30 years as this person and then have two sessions with a therapist and be like, yeah, cool. I'm going to forgive my whole family for fucking me over. You know, it takes, it takes a lot of time. And I think you have to be willing to see it as a gift and going, there's a fucking pile of shit at my front door with flies on it. If I go deep into that piece of shit on the front door, there's a gorgeous like fucking ring. It's gold. It's awesome. It's a gift. But you have to move through the crap and it's not nice. Mm. It doesn't smell good. It doesn't feel good. It's so shit, literally. <laughs> and then you go, oh, look at this gift that I pulled from it. But like we don't want to go into the shit. We just want to have the cute gift. And it's like, no, like it's, it's really hard, but possible, you know? gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping limoncello on the other side. Let's get juicing. Born in the US and raised by a mother with bipolar, Erica Kramer was physically abused and neglected from a young age and so spent much of her childhood in and out of the foster care system where she was sexually abused. She was then kidnapped by her estranged father, then reunited with her mother a year later. Erica suffered two serious car accidents, one of which she had to relearn to walk again, then lost her first husband to drink driving not even a year later. Completely lost in the wake of his death, she followed love to Australia and after a string of unsuccessful relationships, met her now husband and they now have two young boys. Together, they've pioneered a self-love movement. You might know her as the Queen of Confidence. Erica is a life coach, podcast host and an inspirational speaker, empowering women to embrace themselves and own who they are. My chat with Erica was so epic, I've split it into two parts. The first which you'll hear now, will focus on her astonishing life story. There are many moments, and as you'll hear, it happened to me many times, that will have your jaw drop to the ground. Brace yourself for this one because Erica's story will demand your undivided attention. Also, a trigger warning, this chat touches on child sexual and physical abuse. Okay, Erica, thank you so very much for being here. What an absolute privilege and joy to have you on the Lemonade Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so happy. So happy we finally got to do this. Yes, yes. We This is the second time organising it and that's my fault completely. But, um, God, it was so meant to happen. And I was, I've was i been listening to one of Erica's podcast episodes, which I will put a link to it in the show notes because it – Oh, my God, I was driving here for the whole 40 minutes crying and with goosebumps and just wanting to tell them my family that I love them. And you, I, I walked in and I just wanted to give you the most massive hug because you were just so incredible. And, God, I can't wait for you all to hear everything she's about to say. So, firstly, uh, your, story, your story is extraordinary and you are extraordinary and everything you've been through is extraordinary. And I want to soak in all of your wisdom and try and get extract every little bit out of it um, and get take us from the Erica, you know, back in America to the Erica sitting in front of me right now. So can you take us right back to the beginning, to your childhood? What was life like for you and what do you remember? Okay, so gosh, um, I don't really remember anything like under five, but I do remember foster homes were a big part of, I think, my upbringing. So my mom, uh, my dad left when I was two and my mom was a single mother and she suffered with bipolar. And so what that looked like uh, as a five-year-old, I would just be changing schools and living with different people with different cultures, different races, busy homes. And then I would go back to my mom who was highly medicated, but I didn't know at the time. And she was really happy and everything would be fine. And then again, you know, I'd be back again. So she she was physically abusive because she had some, like the bipolar is like manic depression. So in her early years, she was, she had a lot of energy. So she was manic and that looked like coming home and your mom's like cutting photos and putting screws on the floor and saying, let's walk 10 kilometers right now. And like, 
like just crazy shit. Like she'd just be really hype and and paranoid and like someone was gonna do something to us. And then she would get upset and like hit me and like beat me up and I'd, I'd be, you know, she was physically abusive. But I knew it wasn't her. But at the time as a kid, I was just scared of my mom because I was like, she's crazy. <laughs> but I didn't really know she actually was mentally ill. So for me, it was just like the unknown and then police would come and they would arrest her and take her away. And then I was confused and angry at the police because that's my mom and I love her because mm-hmm. children are so naive. And like I could abuse my son right now and make him bleed. And in five minutes, he'd come back and hug me. And it's mm-hmm. so sad because we don't know that as kids. So as a kid, I had the best life ever because I was living in a foster home with all these new people. And my mom, were Puerto Rican, so we had food stamps, no money, no food. Like it was just like we lived a bit in the ghetto. And she wasn't really working. So when I would go live with these, most of them were white families, American white families. I'd be like at the YMCA summer camp doing like, you know, canoeing and zip lining in a camp. Like we couldn't afford that. So it was kind of cool because I got to experience that life. Um, And then I think this kind of just went on and on until I was 16. And I was like, I don't want to be in foster care anymore. And I kind of knew what was happening. And I took you know, I understood that when she wasn't well, she would get angry. And I started like paying attention to her signs and how she was acting. And I think that like by maybe eight years old, I became really aware of my surroundings. Um, I was sexually abused by her boyfriend. I was sexually abused in the foster care system. So as a kid, I didn't know this. I didn't think I had a bad upbringing because I think as adults, we go, oh, my God, you poor kid. But I was actually Wayne Dyer talks about this. He was a foster kid. And he's like, I had the best life. I was in different homes and different schools. So I became like the really friendly, outgoing kid who spoke to the new kids and try to make them feel comfortable. Uh, I became really cool with different groups of people, like different cultures and races. So I think it really helped me become a people person. Um, and the sexual abuse, it was confusing, but also I think I, I, I shared it and I talked about it. I told my mom, you know, I, I was a communicator. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like the childhood experience. No dad, just my mom and, and really no men in our lives besides the sexual abuse guy who then got deported. And that was kind of it, you know, with the childhood with the going between foster homes and going to different camps and meeting all these different people, was there ever an idea in your head that it felt unstable at any times? Or was it just what you knew and did you just think that was growing up? That is such a good question and I've never had anybody ask me that. I didn't I didn't feel like it was unstable. I'm a Gemini, which um, <laughs> really it doesn't mean shit unless you know you are a Gemini and what that means. But I love change and I love psychotic, crazy, like dogs barking, family, kids, like all the crazy. I love that. I thrive in that kind of environment. So adaptable as well. Yes. Yeah, so I feel like I don't know if I like that because I grew up like that or if I was going to be like that. And not to be weird, but like sexually as well. I don't know if I was a sexual girl growing up and still like enjoy sex as a woman, a sexual woman. Is it because I was sexually abused as a young child and so many women have talked to me about this that they feel like it? Or were you always gonna be sexual? Were you always gonna be outgoing? You know, um, I didn't feel like it was exciting, but also I felt like um, I didn't know when I would see my mom, but I got over it fast, if that makes Mm. sense. Because it was like, well, this is your reality. It was like very present. You're Mm -hmm. very, kids are so present. I feel like it was a lot of presence. She was on medication for her condition as well. Would that help when she was taking it? So yes. So her medication was good, but then I realized that like if she didn't take it for three days, she like literally day three was like gone, like hype and gone. Mm. And I think what happened was she would be so happy and things would be going air quotes so well, and then she'd be like, "I'm good. I don't need this." I don't need, I feel great. Like, I don't want to take these pills that make me overweight and blah, 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 and hallucinate. And then she would go off it thinking she could, having no support system, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And do you remember what, like you said, you know, you've said the amazing things about the foster care system that, you know, you, you know, you'd go on these summer camps and do these things that you'd never have an opportunity to do. But were there times that, you know, you'd go to families that you didn't feel included in or you didn't gel with? I can imagine what that would do to a child. Yeah, I think I think it was more like the sexual abuse and the the feeling like you weren't their kid Mm. and feeling like the ones because there were families that had children there and one of the kids was like 17 and I got sexually abused by him and I didn't know I was being sexually abused it was like games you're playing and all that stuff so I think for me it was like knowing that you're not home but also like not to like no pun intended lemons to lemonade Mm. but it was like well this is what I got so 
what can I do with this? And like, where's the good in this? Or what can I focus on? Which I wasn't consciously doing, but I had this like optimistic personality since I was born, I think. Absolutely. Like, it shines <laughs> through everything that you say. Yeah, like, you know, you've been through, and we're going to get to all of it because just strap yourself in. There's a, there is a lot. And through all of it, you just managed to keep putting one foot in front of the foot in front of the other and to me it doesn't feel like that you ever let it get you down that you ever do you ever feel down about it or play the victim I, I did for a long time so I think um, in the childhood part it was like unknown mm-hmm. but then when I got to maybe eight or nine years old I started going oh she's starting to get sick oh shit that means I'm gonna have to change schools oh that means I'm gonna have to leave my friends I have to who am I gonna live with because I literally went to every foster home and every school like every elementary school every high school and then I started getting and then when I was like 13, I had to go to the bank and be like, you know my mom, right? And they're like, yep, I know your mom. I'm like, she's sick. I need to pay. I need to pay this thing. Can you give me a money order? So like, I, then I had to like become kind of adult. So it was easy when I was a kid because I didn't have to worry about it. I was getting taken care of. But like 13, 16, I was like, shit. What's the reality is your mom's sick. No one's coming. I had family and they didn't take me and I don't know why they didn't take me and obviously they probably had their reasons but at the time all that my childhood was telling me was the people who supposedly are your family don't care about taking you strangers need to take you who knows if your mom's coming back I'd have to go to like like mental hospitals like big mental hospitals in Boston and like fight with the staff and say listen you need to stop changing her pills like she's not like a doll like these are the pills that work like I was like defending my mom at like I don't know like 12 years old like telling doctors off and sitting in boardrooms with like the social workers so I think it was cool when I was young but then by the time like the sexual abuse at nine happened and I was 12 and 13 that whole time I was like oh I need to appreciate my mom when she's well oh this could all change I could go back to another home and is that weird guy gonna be there or is this gonna happen so then I think it became from like unknown to then like how do I survive through this and strategic moves that I could make and I think like at 16 I told my my cousin who was 18 can you pretend to live with me so when my mom, when they take my mom away, like they don't come and take me because you'll say you live here. So then that meant like I'm 16, I'm sucking ass at school, uh, I'm not partying or doing anything. I'm just like trying to pay the rent, pay the bills, and keep my mind focused. But I did really bad in school, and like throughout all this, it just created. I my outlet wasn't like depression or food. It was like anger. So I just would fight. I would always be in detention, fighting mm. with people. And like that was kind of like my outlet, which was not healthy. <laughs> but yeah. It sounds like everything, all this childhood made you grow up pretty quickly yes. as well then. Yes. I think like at five, like whenever I do, because, you know, the, the work of coaching and spirituality and healing your inner child, it's always five-year-old Erica at the mm. playground defending my crazy mother, the crazy lady who lives on the corner, um, and me fighting for us, you know, because she, she was amazing like she she did she's my hero to this day like mm-hmm. I can't and I said to you earlier like she was a single mother with bipolar battling with bipolar raising me like holy crap I have two boys and an amazing full-on husband who helps me with everything he does everything I do and I struggle I can't imagine like she literally would hallucinate not met on medication I can't imagine so she's yeah I can't like the way you speak about your mom and everything and your dad which we'll get to as well you could have so much anger. You could be so angry. You could blame her and hate her. And, you know, I know she's still in your life. You could not have her in your life. Why do you speak about her how you do with so much compassion and where does that come from? I think um, so now, obviously, as a life coach and doing all this work and getting coached by all my mentors and the, the investment I made on time and money to heal all this shit, I got to see the reality of it and how I was a victim and how a lot of us that do blame our parents for things it's not like we're trying to be assholes, but it's like we just haven't healed that part. Mm. And we also haven't stepped into that person because she has a story and she has a right and she has a way. And when you stand in them, you can really go, oh, my gosh, no wonder you were that way. So I never resented her because I was all she had and she was all I had. So even though she would abuse me and do all that stuff, the minute the police would come to take her, I would be like fighting the police. Mm. Because, again, kids, we don't know. Like you're our, mothers are our world or our upbringing, whoever raises us. So I think I didn't have that for her. And when I started life coaching seeing a life coach here in Australia um, like nine ten years ago 
she was the one that said to me, you know, it's okay for you to be upset with your mom. Like, it wasn't okay what happened. And I'm like, oh, shit. Because I would just go to defend her. Like, it wasn't her fault. She was on medication. And that is true. But also what's true is, as a child, I still get to feel how I felt and validate that. And so I, I never validated that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I, I got to validate it and then also still not make her wrong for it, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. That's, in, that's an incredibly yeah. powerful way to look at it. You're saying about five-year-old Erica, you've got two sons now, two little boys. Do you sometimes ever take a step back and look at your childhood and think, my God, look at the childhood then I'm giving my sons and can you imagine what it must have been like for you when you look at them? Yes, yes, 100%. I think... I think where I go is like, we live in Australia. It's such a privileged country. It's so safe. And I know that how I am is because of all the parts of me, you know? I'm this way because of all the air quotes bad shit. Um, and I've healed it, so I think it's awesome. But I, I get, I, I worry or get concerned like, are my kids gonna be like too loved up and too perfect and too great and go to a private boarding school in Brighton and be like, oh my God, they're not gonna know what it's like to suffer without wanting them to suffer, <laughs> you know? So I'm like, shit, how do we, how do we do? So I think the best thing for us is like we share our story and what we went through with them and we try to teach them about being kind, not mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. Fucking nice is mm-hmm. bullshit. Like, can you be kind? But I, I do, I think. I think it's uh, once I lost my shit at my four-year-old and he was younger and I literally I wanted to like slap him. I was I wanted to choke him if I'm honest. I wanted to just be like, oh, I'm so angry. And I looked at him and it was like I saw me and then I saw my mom and my hands and my body and I was like, and it like snapped me out of like, Physical abuse is not like what you want to do just because that got done to you. Yeah, well, and that must feel like almost such an instant. Re- oh not that it is, but yeah. it must. You that was what was modelled to you. If times were hard, physical abuse was the answer. Yeah, well, my whole upbringing, I literally beat people up. Like I was, I feel like I was a bully. Like because I would just look to fight with people because that was my outlet. You know, for yeah. as kids, you have different outlets. Still, the emotion that. I have to handle is anger mm. even still like when I mess with what's the emotion that handles me is like anger I'm always working on being kind and letting go and not being right and so it was hard because I thought I yelled at my kids or I'd have to yell at them or they need to get a smack or they need there needs to be like punishment for your behavior mm-hmm. like there has to be a consequence mm-hmm. and that's all from our childhood you mm-hmm. know so I think for me now being able to see him and know that how that messes me up and I see clients and how my clients get messed up from that and going, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm, He's mm-hmm. me paying for life coaches. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the awareness of being able to step, use your own, or, let me start that again. That is the awareness of being able to see your own story and yeah. step back from it. And another thing I do want to bring up as well is going back to your childhood is that you had a near-death experience as well with your mum. Would you yeah. mind talking oh, yeah. us through that? So when we were seven years old, my mom took us to Puerto Rico and she she had a boyfriend for like five years and he was like the closest thing to a dad. He was awesome. And she she wanted to go to Puerto Rico, so she took the medication she needed to take, and we were in Puerto Rico, and now my dad, who left me at two, is from Puerto Rico. I don't know him. I've seen photos of him. I used to scratch his face, and my mom never talked bad about my dad. Like, he wasn't like, he left us. Mm. So listen, single mothers, don't be doing that shit, because no, it's not absolutely cool. absolutely not. Mm-hmm. It's horrible. It's You're putting your shit on your kid. So she didn't do that, and so when we got to Puerto Rico, she got really sick and ended up fighting with her boyfriend and jumping in the rental car. I didn't know this because I'm like seven years old. So she's like, we're leaving and it's raining and she starts driving really fast. And again, she was getting sick. So she thought someone was chasing her. She thought we were being followed by men who wanted to rape her. And I feel like she's had a lot of sexual abuse because she always goes to like a man's going to rape me. Which is really sad. So she is driving down these like crazy hills of Carolina. It's raining and we ended up smashing into this big tree, which I mean, it was like two cars wide this tree and we flipped the car three times and we landed upside down and now behind this tree is a fucking ditch of water like a cliff and a ditch like thank goodness for that tree Mm. so she gets me out upside down I remember my bear Lisa which was like my teddy bear I took to every foster home she was in the car it was glass everywhere we had kids do you remember kids those sneakers Mm -hmm. so like I'm old so the kids (laughs) right we both had kids on I had kids yeah. yeah they were awesome and we got out of the car and there was a house there and she's like let's go see if they can help us now I don't speak Spanish at this time so I'm like an American Puerto Rican girl doesn't speak any Spanish she knocks on their door the lady comes out a guy comes out and again the, the guy comes out she's like they're gonna rape us and kill us we gotta get out of here so no one there to help us no police like we didn't wait for the police so we basically fled a scene of an accident that we created and we're walking and day and night 
in like three days. Like it was nighttime, daytime. We were sleeping on patios. Our fucking kids broke. We had some guy. We slept in some guy's car, and then like they woke up and said, "What are you guys doing in my car?" Kind of thing. And they were gonna drive us to the police. I thought. Then she's like, "They're gonna rape us and kill us." She opens the car. It's like going 50 miles per hour and like runs us out of the car like just tumbles out of a moving car to hide from these guys it was just like is this real shit and we talk about sounds it. like a movie it is and we actually have a 13 minute video of my mom because she gets funny with video but she's getting better and i'm like filming her i'm asking her questions about it because i'm like if she doesn't remember and i don't remember we don't get out like we're gonna twist because we've had so much trauma and so much things happen that your memory does kind of mash things together so that happened and then we ended up at the police station and ended up at her house her sister's house her stepsister's house who then rang my dad and said and this is what I just found out when my dad and I just reunited after 20 years like this Christmas in 2019 and says to my dad you know your daughter's here Margie's gone crazy they almost crashed and killed themselves like you need to come and get her and so my dad rescued me according to him but according to me he kidnapped me and took me away from my mom mm. my mom didn't know he was there she was mentally ill and I ended up staying with him for like eight months at not at my will or my mom's will and it was so crazy to now finally hear that story but like we almost died you know like she was really not well mm. and so she hates talking about it she used to get offended and I said Ma, you have to understand like I'm not trying to say you were a bad mother but like this stuff happened and for me I have my story and she thinks when I talk about it that all I want to talk about is how bad she was and how mm -hmm. sick she was because she's in therapy as well. Mm -hmm. So the therapist is like, let's talk about all the positive stuff. But I'm like, you don't get to take away my story because that shit made me. Like, mm -hmm. so, you know, it's like that, that lack of acknowledgement on her part because of the shame she has. Mm -hmm. It's crazy, yeah. Mm. And what do you remember from that eight, nine months of living with your dad as a perfect stranger at that time. Literally, he was a stranger. And I kicked him and I called him an asshole and I think I spit at him when he tried to take me because I had seen photos of him. And I'm like, you are nothing to me. Um, and remember, now at this age, seven years old, I've proven to myself time after time that my family doesn't care about me. Mm -hmm. That was my story mm -hmm. because my they didn't take me. The foster homes, strangers took me. Now my dad's here. Where the fuck have you been, dude? So it was really like anger towards him. And then he was he was alcoholic at the time. He was drinking a lot. And, you know, I remember just being in a place where I didn't understand anything that was going on and just thinking that I was scared. I was like, where's my mom? When am I going to get out of here? When is school starting? You know, and then the guy that he, like the lady he was married to had a son, um, which later turns out that he was gay, but he would like tried to touch me. Mm. And then I'm like, what is this? Like, you know, then I started kind of being like, am I doing something? Am something wrong with me? Mm. Why are people trying to take advantage of me? And then he was just kind of just drinking. And so I remember at Christmas, I remember meeting Spanish people. I started learning Spanish. I talked to my mom on the phone. There was a, you're coming back, don't worry. Um, kind of thing in my head like you're not going to stay here mm -hmm. so there felt like an end result was me going back home mm -hmm. and so finally when my uncle came he took me and I left and I didn't leave happy with my dad I left like fuck you dude how dare you take me right. where's my mom I was always on my mom's side like always for her because she was there for me you know mm -hmm. um yeah but but the crazy thing was the Spanish I came back and I didn't know Spanish and I think I talked about it in that podcast which made me cry so bad because I'm a mother and like when I came back to her she had no idea I was coming and she wasn't home. And so I'm with my uncle, my dad's brother, who came and got me. He came from Boston, flew to Puerto Rico to come get me and was like, let's go find your mom. And then we go home and she's not there. And then we ended up at this like 7-Eleven kind of shop where she used to go. And I'm like, I bet you she's there. And then we like parked there and her car was there. And I'm like, she's coming out with all these bags. Oh, man, it makes me cry. Oh, still. Makes me I know. Because <laughs> like we're mothers, right? Yeah. Can you imagine someone oh. taking your kid like, fuck. And then like, I'm like, mommy, and I just run to her. And she like dropped, I don't even know what she had, she dropped everything and was like in disbelief, like, oh my God, you're here. And like crying and I was, I was like happy. I'm like, hey mom, whatever. And like, she's like, you speak Spanish? And like, I was only speaking Spanish to her. And she's just like crying, smiling, looking at me. And obviously I'm, I'm in the body of her cause I'm a mother and I'm like, oh, the love that we have for our kids is out of control. And her never knowing when the fuck is my daughter coming back, if she is, cause he asked her for the school papers. Yeah. He was like, I'm going to keep you. And according to him, and I can see how he would think she was a danger. I mean, I literally grew up in foster care, yeah. not with my mom. She beat my ass, and now she's about to kill me in Puerto Rico. According to him, that's his head. So that was amazing, being back home with her. And then that was kind of like, I'm a grown-up. Like, <laughs> I know. I'm like, got tears. <laughs> 
that was yeah that's that's kind of i think that's when i was like oh shit i'm a grown-up like i need to pay attention you know to yeah. what's happening here yeah and then how does that take you from so that you're about eight then to your teens what did those next few years look like well that was crazy because I knew that she would get sick and I knew that and I knew the bank people I knew everybody I knew like I need to pay bills this is what we need to do it was like having a power of attorney without having the physical paper and in our little neighborhood everybody knew us they knew my mom they knew me um and I didn't even say this but every time that my mom went into the mental hospital from like two years old literally when I was two she got sick or two weeks old to till then our, our house would get robbed so the people on the block knew Margie was going to be in a hospital. I was going to be gone. So they would break into my mom's house twice a year. We'd get broken into because we lived on the corner, two women alone, and they would steal our shit. And one of the guys once broke the window. We were out food shopping. We weren't even in foster care. We were food shopping, broke the window, took his blood and put his blood on the walls, on my underwear, on my trolls, on the hair of my trolls, on the fucking white um, sofas. Like he put his blood. He didn't have to do that everywhere. We're driving back from the supermarket and we see this man with our, because we had just gotten robbed. So it was one of those little TVs, you know, the little handheld TVs. Mm. That was all we had. So he broke into our house, put blood everywhere, and took our little handheld TV. We were just robbed. We had shit. My mom sees him, and she's like, that's my TV? And she's like, oh, hell no. And she <laughs> goes, my mom goes and chases this man and punches him in the face, grabs the TV, calls the police. I think he, that man got deported as well. And the police ended up taking our TV for, you know, um, evidence so it, got taken anyway. so it got taken anyway but it was so crazy because like i had this awareness that like i'm not safe i my people are gonna abandon me possibly sexually abuse me holy fuck it was like i felt like i was 40 I, and i still feel like i'm tw i'm 36 and i feel like i'm like 99 like i'm like definitely got wisdom from you know what i mean it must feel like at every possible opportunity you are being taken advantage of it was crazy it was crazy it was like you can't trust people mm. you're not safe like, so the stories that this creates that we have to unravel in hopefully not only therapy, but life coaching, ladies, mm -hmm. you know, um, like it was like, oh, shit. Like, I no wonder I was a victim. No wonder I was angry. No wonder I was like blaming all the reasons why I wasn't, you know, I was even racist. Like white people have it easy because mm -hmm. I got a, I got a glimpse into some white people's mm -hmm. lives. <laughs> you know, not everybody had it easy, but that was like so all That's these perfect. stories got created. Um. So yeah, I think after that, I just I was I was switched on. I was paying attention. And when I was thirteen, my mom. I came home from school, and my mom wasn't home. And I'm like, hmm, where's my mom? And the neighbor's like, I'm so sorry. She asked me to take her to the train station, and she was not okay. And I I didn't know what to do. She was angry, so I had to take her. I'm like thirteen. My mom ended up getting on the train, getting on a, uh, on a plane, and flying herself to Puerto Rico, with no luggage, no nothing. She just left. She was like lost it she was like sick again and she left to puerto rico i don't know what the fuck she was thinking when i was 13 i was in school and i came home and she wasn't there so like i was by myself for three months so my my best friend's family took me in so i went and lived with them because again i didn't want to involve the social workers but they got involved because the neighbors always would call you know and thank goodness for the nosy neighbors y'all um so i'm living at her house and one day i was on the school bus and our school, the school bus from my friend's house to my house was like, you know, two kilometers. So it would stop in front of my house. There was this bus station, the school bus station. And so I'm at the thing and I look and my mom is on the front porch smoking a cigarette. She's got eyeliner like up her face like the Joker. And she's black, like tan as hell. And I'm like, what the f When did she get back? What the fuck? What is she smoking? And I couldn't go talk to her because like social workers were like, you're not allowed to until she's clear. Because technically, they couldn't put her in a, in, a, in a mental hospital unless she harmed me. So the only reason that she would go to mental hospitals is if I would call the police, which Puerto Rican people, air quotes, don't do. You call the police on your mom. And so it was this crazy thing of like, she was sick for three months and I would see her at the bus stop every morning and be like, fuck, is someone going to look after her? Like, you know, and finally I had to call the police and be like, you need to take her. She's not well, you know, and with the fear that I was going to get judged by doing that. But like, it was just... It was just crazy. After that, it was just like looking after yourself. I sucked so bad in school. I was a good kid, though, for some reason. I don't know why. I never did. I never had sex with anyone. I never had parties at my house. I never got drunk and did weird shit. Mm. It was like responsible. Mm. Oh, my God. I just got an aha moment. Okay. <laughs> what, share it? What yes. So I always say to my husband, I don't know why I'm so like, I have this like responsibility thing. 
Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm a coach, so I work on all my shit. And that's the only one I haven't been able to uncover. And I think I just, like, right now, as we're talking about it, fucking talk therapy, y'all. <laughs> yeah, I had to be responsible, and I had to pay bills, and I had to make sure this, and I make sure that. So I think that, like, I'm like, is it safe to do psychedelics when you're a mother? You know, yeah. although I think it's awesome, and you should. But, <laughs> like, you know, like, is it? Sh- am I allowed to do this? Like, yeah. it's like, I'm always, like, very responsible. And I'm such a rebel, so, like, I don't know where that came from. But I think it was that, like, having to be a parent at seven years old, you know? At five years old, being like, watch your back. Parenting your mom as well. Mm. Yeah, and like, we had a lot of strife because she would always say, I'm your mother. And you know, you always do this, and I'm your mother, and I did this. And and when you ask her now, how was your upbringing with Erica? She's like, she was a princess. I changed her clothes three times a day. I loved her. I I taught her everything. And I'm like, bitch, that is not the story that I have. But it's not like I don't honor that for her. But like, oh no, mom. Like, you don't get to be like, I was the best mother ever. I will say you were amazing, you were my hero, but like there was a lot of dark shit for me as a kid. Mm. Like what? That's incredible awareness though to be able to say, for you to say like, hear her say that and yeah. hear her say, yeah, like I was this kind of mom. That anger must just sometimes boil over and you must just be like, this is not how fucking was. Yeah, so she's my biggest teacher. And I said to her, when I become Oprah, you're going to sign like, all kinds of media release agreements that I will sue your ass because she would be the worst person the media could talk to. Like, honestly, like if I was Oprah right now, honestly, because she, she has these stories that are not all true. They're like pieces of this. She gets angry and resentful and then she'll like pull the card on you and be like, nah. You know, so I do. She is my biggest teacher. Like Mm. when she comes here for three weeks, me and my husband are like, next time two weeks, Mm. next time one week. Should she not come back? Like, (laughs) but we love her. Like, it's so hard because I understand her because I've done a lot of work. Like, and believe me, you guys, it's not easy, like at all, because what you have to do is like check your ego. You have to become compassionate to the extreme. Like for me to bring my mom and dad together, that wasn't easy. I couldn't have done that three years ago. I probably couldn't have done that last year. Mm-hmm. It took a while and, and you let go of the expectation of who she should be, mm-hmm. you know, and managing your thoughts and then being able to see who she is without the story, which is my story, like Brene Brown shit. Like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, that is, that's been my biggest, but I'm like, thank you, mom, mm-hmm. because look at my story I have to mm-hmm. share now. And I, I'm so grateful of the lemons because I feel like you get to then, it's like your initiation. Like, I don't get to empower women by staying safe in my little box and going, my life is great. No, like you have to fucking burn in the flames, not walk on the coals. You need to like third degree burns your whole body and have the healing from the charcoal. And then when it's healed, go, let me tell you about these scars and what happened. And then I can compassionately hold space for you. So these coaches that want to empower women and they've done shit, it's like, you don't get to do it. It's like an initiation. So I see it as a gift now because like Tony Robbins talks about it, you know, it's like it happened for you. It's hard when you're in the burn, you don't see that. So I'm fully out of the burn and obviously healing wounds, but it's totally possible for us. And that's what like I'm obsessed about because it is, you know. Absolutely. And I think that's a really important point that you brought up just then is that the people in your life that sometimes have hurt you the most or let you down the most or disappointed you the most are there for a reason and are the biggest teachers and I've got people in my life that you know people that now I'm still close with that have hurt me so badly and I am so thankful for them being in my life because had they not been in that I would not know A, B, C, D, E and F about myself and be who I am now so is that what you say to women or you know in men as well if not to blame the Blame's not the right word, but not to feel resentment instead of flip that mindset. Yeah, I think it's hard because it is like my clients. I was talking to someone this morning. She's like, I I did the work. Like, when is it going to work? And I'm like, honey, we're talking eight, nine years. Mm. We're talking like lots of coaches, lots of work. So it's not something that's going to happen overnight. So if you're listening and you're in the thick of resentment of your parents or you're in the thick of a fucked up traumatic story or you're in the thick of I don't have a traumatic story. I'm not special you know, comparison, like understand that you have to be in that. Like for a long time, I was a victim. For a long time, I made bad mistakes. For a long time, I didn't heal my shit. Mm -hmm. And so it takes time. You can't go 30 years as this person and then have two sessions with a therapist and be like, yeah, cool. I'm going to forgive my whole family for fucking me over. You know, it takes it takes a lot of time. And I think you have to be willing to see it as a gift and going, there's a fucking pile of shit at my front door with flies on it. 
if I go deep into that piece of shit on the front door, there's a gorgeous like fucking ring. It's gold. It's awesome. It's a gift. But you have to move through the crap and it's not nice. Mm. It doesn't smell good. It doesn't feel good. It's so shit, literally. <laughs> and then you go, oh, look at this gift that I pulled from it. But like, we don't want to go into the shit. We just want to have the cute gift. And it's like, no, like it's it's really hard, but possible, you know? Absolutely. And looking through your journey and everything you've been through, and I think you've spoken about it a lot of the time then, um, you know, you, you said at 16, I don't want to go in foster care anymore. Um, and there began a cycle, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, of running away from what was happening and finding other outlets. Because, you know, you said it was a miracle you even finished high school, but then you ran away to California and met your first husband. Yeah. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, I think for me, I had this subconscious knowing that I wanted to get the hell out of where I was, you know, Um yeah, I was just like, I can't, I can't be here. I don't feel like these people. I don't feel like I want to be in the ghetto and be on food stamps and be pregnant, you know? Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. I, I had a cousin that said to me, stay a virgin. That is the most powerful thing you could do. I was like, what? He's like, seriously, do not lose your virginity to these assholes in this town. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, whatever. And I listened to him. And it was so funny because now looking back, I'm like, it was the best advice. Like, don't get caught up in all the buffering and all the numbing out of the things. I, it's like I couldn't because I had shit to do. Mm. I had to pay the rent. I had to do this. I had to check on my mom. Like, I had to mother her. So I couldn't, like, take a break and be a kid. So it was kind of good because if I could have done that, maybe I wouldn't have done well. Maybe I would have went the other way. And so there was too much to do to party and get fucked up and do bad, bad things. But then at 16, I remember saying to my mom, like, I wanted to be an actress since I was like seven, right? And I was like, I'm gonna move to California and I'm gonna go be J-Lo, because I love J-Lo. <laughs> Shout out to J-Lo, still, God. And I was did like- Did you see her at the Super Bowl? <laughs> yes, I did, and I'm like, okay, okay J-Lo, still leveling it up, she's Seriously. amazing. So I was just like, I don't wanna be here in Framingham, Massachusetts. I wanna go, I wanna be an actress. I didn't do well in school, I didn't have good grades. We didn't have any money. So the army came into my um, cafeteria in high school and they were like, I was always competitive, they were doing push-ups and they're like, you, do you wanna join the army? Four years free, any state college. And I'm like, oh my God, that's my way out. I'm gonna go join the army. They're gonna pay for my college because I sucked at school. And I'm gonna go live in California and be an actress. That was like my goal and my dream. And so I told my mom at 16, I was like, I wanna join the army, can you sign this paper? She like still says she had no idea, but I'm like, I needed your signature, so you did know. And so at 17, my, my so there was an underlying, I need to get the fuck out of here as far away as possible. And, and you know what's crazy, and I talked about this with, with my husband yesterday, I didn't have regret, like I didn't have guilt. Like I knew damn well that me leaving that state, leaving my house, my mom was gonna go. I knew she was gonna get sick. Mm. I, I almost knew that after three days of me being gone, she would be ill. Because you know, when you're not stable mentally and you take medication and you don't have support, like I was all she had, I'm all she has. So I was like, I'm out. And I knew she was gonna get sick, but I was like, I don't, I need to go. Mm. It was like I had this other thing, this higher thing, and I wasn't spiritual, so I don't know what it was, but I was like, I just know that I need to get the fuck out of here. I'm built for more, I can't be here. So I joined the army and I went to boot camp. Um, our senior year of high school, my senior year trip was boot camp. And in boot camp, after one month of boot camp, 9-11 happened in boot camp, which was like, the craziest, because our young people, we didn't have war. Mm. We, we knew about like Desert Storm, but that was like grandpa shit. Like nobody joined the army to go to war then. Now it's a different story, right? So we're there chilling, learning about guns and grenades and all that. And they put us in this room and they were like, everybody get in here. And they turned on the TV and the second tower was being hit. And we're like, what the fuck? Like drill sergeants are crying. Everybody's crying. And we're like, is this real? It was like, I remember it. It was like halfway through boot camp. And I was like, oh shit. Like they turned the TV off and they were like, our country's at war. You were all going to war. Oh my God, I've got goosebumps. And I was like, um, what? Like I joined for college. Like what the fuck? And my boyfriend at the time, my high school sweetheart, Gio, he had joined the Marines. So we both joined military to get out of our area and move to California. So the Marines don't play. They're like first in, last out. Mm. So he's on a base that's locked down. He's going, like they're packing bags, you know? And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, I'm, I'm here for school. Like I, like, I couldn't get my head around that. So after that, the army changed. It was like, we're sending these young people to war? 
And they were like, okay, listen, Sergeant Zabovita, focus. Okay. They were really like, not gentle, but like loving and caring and showing us actual, like making sure we understood how to shoot, how to do a gun, how to do this, how to shoot rifles, how to. It wasn't practice. No, it wasn't like bullshit. Yeah, whatever. Armies, let me be mean to you and scare you. It was like, oh, we're sending you to war. And for whatever reason, I never went to war. Thankfully, I almost went to Bosnia, but I didn't. And I ended up moving to California. And it was so funny because my mom came to my graduation so sick, Mm. like so unstable. I don't know how she got on a plane and got there. And then she said to me just this Christmas, like, oh, I was at I was at Erica's graduation. She's telling my mother-in-law. And I'm like, yeah, mom, you were so sick. And she's like, why do you always have to bring that up? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm in a line. I can't even blink. I have to look straight and I see you and you are mentally unwell at my graduation. And I'm not supposed to like move because I'm an army soldier. But all I wanted to do was like break down in the fetal position and cry. Because mm-hmm. I was like, who brought her? How did she what the fuck you know what I mean and then her memory is I made it to your graduation mm. like how interesting is how we see things <laughs> so I had moved to California me and Gio ended up secretly getting married because he went to Iraq we didn't tell anyone my mom never came to California to visit me there were many times in between that she got sick and I just had to manage that from afar and I think it became a lot harder as she got sick the older I was because I was the responsible party when I was a kid it was fun they would take me away and someone would sort her out but it was like shit she's a burden like it's hard it was hard for me and so Gio went to Iraq he came back from Iraq and then we ended up moving to California I mean to Florida because I felt so bad that he had never lived like he finished high school and went to war Mm. and he'd made it back so I was like I know you want to be a DJ you want to move to Florida and go to this music school let's go and I moved we moved to Florida and all the crazy shit that went down there was really um, I ended up working full time for the army because I was doing part time like one weekend a month like reserve thing I ended up going full time and giving my whole life to him because I felt bad that he didn't get to live Mm. which wasn't my fault but I felt that and I was like you go to college I'll do the army don't work just do school music school hello you're just playing video games getting high like having fun on the weekends and I'm working in the army and so one, one night we had we had got invited to go out and we were really reckless. Like we drank a lot of alcohol. We were young. We were both kids that had trauma. He had a dad that left as well. We hadn't worked on our shit. So we went to this party, um, to this club. We had no money. And his parents gave him the, the Fast and the Furious like Mitsubishi Evo car that goes like 260 kilometers an hour with no chip. So we drove that partied really hard, drank alcohol, got fucking drunk and then proceeded to drive home. And on the way, we all fell asleep. Like, he was driving. I was at the back in the middle. And this is a lesson for women, especially if you're a mother or not. I was at the back, drunk, going, put your seatbelt on. Put your seatbelt on. Worrying about everybody else at the back, like, swinging. You know, like, I wasn't, I didn't have a seatbelt on. Wow. And we literally smashed into a ditch, hit a tree, hit a van, and then smashed into a milk store, like a milk bar, a convenience store. And in turn, I didn't have a seatbelt. So what happens? I fly out of the car like 25 feet in the air, snapped my ankle. My I landed on the wing of this car, like it's like a carbon fiber wing. I broke it with my back and was halfway in the van. And we literally helicoptered out. I had broken my back in, I don't know, three places. I had to get a fusion. I had to fuse my ankle. So there's like titanium. I was in the hospital for like 25 or 26 days on a morphine pump. And meanwhile, his family's coming to visit us. They don't know that we're married because we never told them. So I'm like, hide his ring, blah, all this crazy shit. My mom didn't know because I said, do not tell her. She will get so sick. So my mom had no idea until maybe three years later that that happened to me. I could have died and she had no idea because I was like, well, she's not going to be able to handle it. That was my story, which I would never do that now. You tell your parents. but So you dealt with that all alone then? Yeah. So I had an army mom who she was like an angel, Sergeant Lopez. She became like my army mom. And to this day, this woman, she came every day to the hospital, drove an hour, washed my body, washed my hair, took care of me. Um, she was incredible. So she looked after me. And I feel like it always provides, right? Someone will find you. Mm-hmm. So if you're out there and you don't have family, do you have a friend who's like a sister? You know, if you got that, you're lucky, right? So she looked after us. Um, we never drove, drove and drove, like we're drinking and driving again. Then the following year, it was so funny because that when that happened, I was like, I almost died. What am I doing with my life? I never wanted to be full time in the army. Mm-hmm. Gio's going to school. I'm worried about him. It was like typical women not 
like filling their cup. So I was like, I'm gonna be, I wanna do my acting, which I didn't get to do in Los Angeles. So I started modeling, started doing like music videos with like Pitbull and all these people in Miami because we lived in Florida. Mm. And that's like, he didn't like that, but I was like hardcore going for it. Um, the following year we had a party at our house. It was for like the Oscar and Mayweather boxing match. Mm-hmm. We were drinking, but it was responsible. We were home. We were not drinking and driving anymore. Everybody wore seatbelts. And I had the army weekend the next day. So you have to be up at like 5 a.m., go there at 7 a.m. You don't mess around. So I was like, you guys, I'm going to go to bed. You guys party. Stay here. I'm going to sleep. I have to go to sleep. I went to bed, and I remember waking up at 6 a.m., the alarm going off, and the the phone had rang, and it was like the hospital. And I didn't know. It's like the hospital ringing me at 6 a.m. I had a $120,000 hospital bill from that car accident the year before, which I didn't pay. I had no insurance. It was ridiculous. So I was like, oh, maybe it's the hospital calling, but they don't call it 6 a.m. in the billing department. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I got to go. So I get ready. I'm getting my suit on. I got my uniform on. I go outside to the living room, and his friends are on the couch sleeping. I'm like, where's Gio? Like, his name was Giovanni. I'm like, where's Gio? They're like, oh, I don't know. I didn't. I don't know where he went, and I'm like, what the hell? But I'm like rushing, so I'm like, I have to go. I have a missed call from him at 1.20 in the morning. I'm trying to call him, trying to check where he is. No keys, no car. I'm like, I have to go. You guys try to find him. So I go to work so I don't miss like the morning formation and get killed and literally go into my office, see Sergeant Lopez. I'm like, Mama Lopez, we had a party at home last night. Gio's not home. I don't know where he is, but I just want to let you know. I might just make some phone calls. So I'm calling the hospitals. I'm calling the jail cells, calling our friends. His brother calls me. Have you heard from him? No. I'm like, don't freak the brother out because who knows what, maybe he's drunk somewhere again. Literally at 12 o'clock, it started raining. (laughs) It started raining at 12 o'clock and I said to her, I don't know where my husband is. Like, I need to find him. Mm. Like, it's fucking 12 o'clock, and it's raining, and I felt like he was somewhere, and I didn't know where. And I was like, I have to go. Can I please be excused? She's like, go. I leave. I go to the ho- the house again, and I had calls from the hospital. So I started calling that hospital and said, someone called me. I'm looking for my husband. I don't know what's going on. And they're like, look, we can't give you anything over the phone. If you want to come in, come in. I'm like, he's not there. Mm. Worst case He's going to be with like a leg wrap, you know, like on TV. He's going to be wrapped with white bandages with his leg up like, sorry, babe, I fucked up. So we drive there and I'm freaking out and I'm fully in my uniform. I'm freaking out. I got his two friends with me, his friend Ryan, that they grew up in Boston together. So they'd known each other forever before I even knew him. And then another friend from Florida. We get there and I walk into the emergency and I see this boy, poor guy. He should not work there. His face was like set everything. And I was like, hi, I called, and he's like, oh, can you wait over there in like one of those rooms where they tell you the bad news? And I'm like, oh, fuck, I don't wanna wait in here, why am I in here? And it was like 10 minutes, and I felt like it was four hours, and I like started freaking out, and I'm in my uniform in the army, and this woman across from me is in one of those rooms, and she's like, listen, they told my husband to, to wait here for his having surgery, don't worry, like it's not always bad, these rooms are just privacy. I'm like, all right, and then I sat down, and like the double doors opened, and in walks the nurse and a doctor, and she just looks at me, and she looks down, and it was like slow motion. It was like, that was like my moment of insanity, if I've ever had one, it was that. Like I was like, what the fuck is going on? And she said, I'm so sorry he didn't make it. And I was like, I'm sorry? And she was like, Giovanni Lopez, you know, we tried to blah, 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 I didn't even know what she was saying, she's like, he didn't make it. And I'm like, what do you mean? And like his friend is literally on the floor screaming, kicking, like losing his shit. And I'm just like, I don't understand. Like no face, like insane. Like I don't understand. And she's like, I'm sorry he didn't make it. And I'm just like, what am I supposed to do right now? And I was like, his car payment is due tomorrow. Like that's what came up to, I don't know what the fuck was I was thinking. And then it was like, I don't know what to do right now. And then I would like start screaming, take my clothes off, smash a fucking lamp. And then I would sit down and be like, I don't know what to do right now. And they were like, it was so crazy. Like someone should have taken me and like medicated me. Mm. And then I went in the hallway, I called his family and they're like, you're alive. We thought you were dead. They were crying. Like the police came to their house and went down their stairs and said, we're sorry. They didn't make it. They thought I died. And then they had to find out we were married and they didn't know we were married. It was all this crazy shit of like, you know, like that was really my like straw. I was like, you know what? What the fuck? And to this day, I think it was like the biggest thing. And that for me was kind of like, okay, how am I going to make it through this? I'm going to have to like Sergeant Lopez came back and she was like, she took, she took care of me. Like she literally signed like as if she was my mom Mm. and she took me to the morgue. She took me to the embalming. Like we had a private embalming. She took me to the fucking towing car. Like she took me to all this, like all this stuff that I could have never done by myself. Mm -hmm. And she just needed someone to care for you. And she just like, 
should I sign the paper? And he had insurance, and so we got insurance so I could give his mom the money for the school so he didn't have to owe 40K to the college and buy this beautiful stone. And, like, I don't know what I did. I think we gave away the rest of the money because I just didn't want even to have it. And so that was really fucking hard and, and horrible. And then I, I met a man maybe six months later in Australia, and I just was like, I'm moving. I'm going to go to Australia. And, yep, it was like a numbing out, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. He'd been in a car crash, is that right, your husband, your first husband? Yeah, so my, so that's what happened. Sorry, yeah, so he basically left at 2 a.m. to get some keys or something, wow. and he did not have a seatbelt, so I'm like, bullshit. He smashed into an open plain field. Nothing was there going like 40 kilometers an hour. Does that make sense? Like, it was almost like, this is your time to go if it ever was, because we hit so much. He was driving that car. He had a concussion. I mean, nothing happened. He didn't have a seatbelt. He always wore a seatbelt. Like, almost it didn't make sense, mm -hmm. you know? And it was so crazy, because when we went to the crash site, I saw the woman who her house was outside of there, and she came out, and she was like, I was with him. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, just like what I got, I got all this stuff. She's like, I was with him. I sat with him. He was face down. You know, he was bleeding, but he wasn't in pain. His eyes were closed, and I prayed for him, and I held his hand, and the ambulance came. And, like, I want you to know he wasn't suffering, and he wasn't awake. And I was just like, like, I met the woman who sat with him. Like, she gave me the nightgown she had on that had a rip because she jumped through the fence. And it was just like, I was, I was just like, what? Like, this is insane, mm. you know? And because it was so traumatic, and I had too much trauma on trauma on trauma, I was kind of like, I'm gonna delete this. Like I have to, I have to survive and keep mm -hmm. going. And it was like running away from what had happened. And then I lost his family because we're okay now. But at the time, they were like, "You didn't tell me you were married. Mm. We couldn't organize a funeral." He, they wanted him to wear his marine suit. He didn't want to fucking wear his marine suit and want to wear like ghetto clothes that he liked, you know. So it was like fighting that, you know, like um, doing all of that stuff that I never would have thought we would have ever had to do, mm. you know, and like not having the strength to do it, but doing it as we were talking before we started recording like you just make it happen when you have to you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and then you you said you touched on then that you were running away um that you wanted to run away you just wanted to escape it all and you met a man an australian man if yeah. that's right in vegas yeah. Yep. yeah so um when Gio had passed away one of my friends was a guy and he ended up moving in with me because i think i needed a man like a husband or a man because he was my husband for five years now mm. so no one knew we were married but to a woman we love being married. Like, we love that shit. It's like, oh, he's my husband. Security. Yeah, like, he's my husband, and we're husband and wife, even though no one knows. So then when he passed away, Marlon came and stayed with me, and he was a good friend, and I did not love him, but he was amazing, plus his heart. And I just distracted myself with him, but I wasn't in love with him, and I had to say, I don't, I don't love you. I ended up meeting up with my high school sweetheart before, after Gio, um, and dating him for a few months. That was messy. I was just trying to, like, mm. fill this man void, because I felt like I needed someone. Because I did everything by myself my whole life. Yeah. And now I have this man. I'm like, oh, someone's going to... I had the story that a man's going to be the one that makes the money. And a man's going to be the one that saves me. And that was such a story that so many of us have, which is such bullshit. So I was like, I'm out. I'm going to go to this hair conference. I was a hairdresser. I went to Vegas and had this amazing time at this conference and met this Australian man. And he was so different. Like, he looked gay. Because in America, guys wear baggy pants. And I was in the ghetto, so I was used to, like, ghetto dudes, Latin guys or black guys. And he was, like, an Australian Greek dude. And he was super skinny, and he had a cool accent. And I was like, fuck it. I didn't talk to this guy. And we started keeping in contact. He ended up coming to Miami, where I was. We met up there. We Skyped. We just stayed Skype friends. And he was lovely on Skype. And I think I was numbed out. I was trying to numb out what happened and being like, nope, delete, control, alt, delete. Didn't mm. happen. I'm okay. And I don't have time or space for this. Yeah. Because yeah. like, I feel like if I did deal with it, it was going to fuck me up. I felt like I didn't have the bandwidth mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. actually sit with that. Well, you're in a state of flight or fight, a permanent state of flight or fight. And when you're in that heightened state, there is no room to deal with the stuff because you've got to keep on going there's danger yeah i was just like i can't I, I can't do this so i was like nope okay he's nice that's cool let's go that'll do yeah and then he he came to visit me in florida i had this beautiful apartment that i had hooked up and amazing he came to see me and then he was like you should come to australia i'm like okay cool and i booked a flight to australia to come and see him uh, when he came to Florida, he wasn't that nice. Like he, my friends were like, "Oh, I don't know about this guy. He's a bit of a, a an asshole." Like what Australians would call a wanker. Mm. Like he was, he was very like verbally abusive and bossy and like a bit like status and Bondi and all that shit. You know, like it was not cool. And I didn't see it because I was like. I'm a broken piece of shit from America. There's this cool looking guy who had money and was skinny and like cool clothes and 
unknown, unknown, cool stuff. I don't know what that is. So something's wrong with me. Maybe he can fix it. Mm-hmm. And then so I went to Australia to visit him. I ended up coming for uh, one, like two weeks and ended up staying for three months. And then I called my friend and said, I'm not going to come back. I'm just going to be in Australia and I'm going to work with this guy and help him. And I, 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 she sold all my shit. Sergeant Lopez again, Mama Lopez. Mm-hmm. I love her. She's still in my life. She's amazing. She sold my car, all this stuff. Like I sold my whole apartment, which was so pimped out for like a thousand bucks. And and it just went to the car. So I never came back. I ended up, um, I end, sorry, I did come back once. I came back to get my stuff. I lost everything I had of Geo's. Like I had pieces of the car crash. I had this, I had that. I gave it to my friends to hold it. My dog had died. Geo and I's dog had died after him. And like the ashes, she kept them. All this crazy like mash up because trauma just mashes your mind up. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know what I was doing now. I wish I had the pieces of the car and I wish I had... Yeah. The, you know, like those things, because I, I, I just gave them away, almost like, I want to start fresh, you guys, like, I need a new life. And so my mom met him. She did not like him. She's like, I don't like that guy. My best friend was like, he's an asshole, Erica. And I'm like, no, no, you guys don't know. I'm moving to Australia. Goodbye. And I lasted with Paul. Bless you, Paul. You were totally an asshole. But I'm so <laughs> grateful to Paul, because I lasted for about 11 months in Sydney and I moved from Miami to Mount Druitt which is like mm-hmm. you know they had an SBS special there shout out to Mount Druitt um, it was not fun I worked my ass off I helped his business um, it was a big hair company here and they ended up going who did this and so the head office contacted me when I broke up with him and were like you need to work for us and that was cool so I was like alright I'm going to stay here so kind of like my little gypsy I loved moving around because of the foster homes I think so I ended up leaving him moving to Paddington which was on that was awesome in the city in Sydney and working with this hair company which then brought me to Melbourne for another guy who was no good but I needed those two no good relationships to teach me that I, I in those relationships basically what my reality was you're broken you're a piece of shit you've got a fucked up background you're dirty you're not good. You have photos of you like in bikinis in Miami. I'm not going to show you that to my parents. Like you're all broken. That was like the, the proof in the pudding. And, I, and then these man, men treating you badly reaffirmed and validated that what you said. Yeah. Yep. So I was attracting the asshole to, to tell me, yeah, you're right. You're not worthy. I'm going to fix you. Let's remove the tattoo because I had a tattoo of Gio's signature on my bum because I never wanted a tattoo, but I got that tattooed. And like literally I started erasing his tattoo, and it was so crazy because I, um, the guy that I dated in Melbourne, the, the other guy who was no good, the second one, before my husband, he had me go on Google and delete all of my photos. Like, can you imagine trying to get photos off the internet? Like, I was emailing photographers at 2 a.m. Australia time so that I could contact them and say, please delete that. He had me deleting my tattoo of Geo, right? You need to let that go. He had me lying to his family about who I was, like, tell them you have a dad, and don't tell them you were a model, and don't tell them this, and when you clean up your past, then you can come to a wedding with me. That's what he would say to me, and I was like, what am I doing? And so it was so funny because I actually was deleting Geo mm. from my mind. I had my computer. I was trying to delete my photos and I ended up deleting all of iPhoto. So literally every photo of my whole life, my entire life, Geo, everything I've ever had, deleted because wow. of this shit. So I was like, and again, that's massive. So I just didn't even deal with that. Like literally to this day, I'm like, okay, start fresh. Like what happens when your shit burns and you have to start fresh? So I was like, nah. I'm fucking done with this guy. I ended up breaking up with him and my personal trainer at the time is my husband now. Was really lovely and was like, you know, I know you're sad. You should come to my party. It's my 30th birthday. You should come. And he like secretly liked me. I didn't know. And he had this clairvoyant life coach woman who's super spiritual and was like tuned in and she's like, there is energy with you and this Erica girl. And he's like, she's got a boyfriend. And she's like, anyway, there's energy there. And so that she like told him that and ended up that we finally broke up with this guy. I got with Hamish. You know, me and Hamish were like twin flame. Like when I met Hamish, it was like, and I told him everything. And he like cried with me, introduced me to his family, showed them all my modeling photos, told them, hey, this is a woman who's like broken, but also put herself back together. And they accept everything about me. Like I got to be me for the first time in my life. Because even in foster homes, I was trying to be the punk girl. Then I was like the preppy girl. Then I was like the ghetto girl. I was like, who the fuck am I? So really like meeting Tanja and Hamish and working on myself, that took 12 months of solid life coaching, spiritual shit. I was not spiritual. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I was like, am I going to get some voodoo weird shit happening? It was amazing. And then we joined mentorship. We don't. We joined life coaching, business coaching. We spent about eighty or 90000 on ourselves on credit cards because I was American, poor girl, mm. and 
we refinanced our home loan. Like we made it work because we had to. There was so much pain. And then I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. And this is what I want to do. And then it kind of like evolved. I feel like I've been talking forever. Sorry. No, 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 no. Please don't apologize. I've been absolutely transfixed in you. <laughs> I've just been staring at you, like nodding my head and getting tears and goosebumps. It is. Wow. So. They're all the questions I had and you just answered them in the most incredible, not all the questions, but about your story in the most incredible way that I could never have possibly, you know, articulated. So, well, thank you for being so vulnerable and open and sharing that. That was just, wow. Okay. Well, as you just heard, Erica's story left me speechless. She's so vulnerable, fierce, empowered, and my God, am I thankful to have her speak so candidly on this podcast like she just did. I'll be releasing part two next week, and that will look at a number of things, including how she rebuilt her life here in Australia, how she tackled her trauma head on, and how and why she is forgiving her family. It will also look at how she's turning her experiences into an opportunity to help other women through her queen of confidence movement you can check out erica on instagram at the queen of confidence and as always you can find me at elizabeth anil i'll also put a link to erica's website in the show notes and a link to that podcast episode as well of hers that i mentioned it's such a lesson in forgiveness and it really blew me away so i think you'll like that one too I say it every week, but if you have a spare minute, I'd be so appreciative if you could hit subscribe, leave a review and hit five stars. That helps other people find the podcast. I can't wait to be back in your phones as usual on Thursday with a midweek squeeze. Otherwise, sit tight because part two is coming next Monday and you're absolutely going to love this two-part potty. Thanks so much, guys. Have a wonderful week and we will chat soon. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.